Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And, it, and so here's the, I mean, I think that there's a couple of, of points there. I mean, the first is that... Um, you know, if we're doing like an SAT analogy thing, right? Um, halakha is to traditional Judaism what Sharia is to traditional Islam, right? So it's the same sort of encompassing uh, social, legal uh, system and, and contract in both systems. But I would also say, if I were to further the analogy, I'd say that um, Catholic canon law is the, is the same thing. Um, the... the, um, the Pilgrims who left England to come here and you know establish Plymouth Rock, they weren't coming here for religious freedom. They were coming here from freedom from religious oppression there, but they wanted to create a pretty strict religious society once they got here, right? Um, which they did, uh, and then burned witches and things like that. So, um, so you know, so, so uh, these are you're, you're absolutely right about that. All right, let's let's go on a little bit further, and then we'll take some time for for questions and conversation. So, um, the the theme continues in Leviticus of, of enshrining this into law. When, when a stranger, when a sojourner, a, a yagur ichad ger, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. The stra- this is, I think, the important piece. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself. Now, that's important because we have the passage uh, earlier in, in that chapter, actually, of Leviticus. Um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we like to understand that that passage as being a sort of like all-encompassing principle. It's the golden rule, right? Don't do unto others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Uh, it, a text like this shows that that passage probably doesn't mean that. That passage probably means something more, more literal. So, you know, your actual neighbor or your fellow citizen, whatever. But here it says, even though we have that law that you've got to love your neighbor as yourself, that same expectation extends beyond your uh, immediate sphere of concern. That you should treat immigrants the same as citizens. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. In other words, because you weren't afforded that same treatment in Egypt, you should not live like that now. And then... uh, Leviticus goes on, you shall have one standard for stranger and citizen alike, right? Mishpat echad yelachem, you shall have one law for, 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 for immigrants and for citizens. I am the Lord your God. In other words, um, you can't uh, uh, expect different things uh, from uh, immigrants that you wouldn't expect for yourself. You shouldn't treat immigrants differently than native-born people. You should have one law that governs everybody equally, right? It's like the law in, that's on top of the Supreme Court, right? Equal, ju- equal justice for all. Uh, we already looked at text number 18. Um, 
And text number 19 uh, goes to the same point that number 18 did, this idea that, uh, that uh, fundamentally uh, the, the law treats immigrants in the way that the law treats immigrants, in part because of our historical experience, and in part because of conviction that no land belongs to anybody. Right? So if you were a native-born person in a particular piece of land, that doesn't mean it's your land. You don't, you don't have the authority to determine whether or not somebody else can come and live there. Right? You don't have the authority to hold it as your own. You have the responsibility to share it and to treat the person who's coming in the same way you would want to be treated. So Psalm 39 says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not disregard my tears. For like all my forebears, I am an alien resident with you. Right? Kiger um, anochi. Right? I am a sojourner imach with you. And I love this text from, uh, from the Midrash, Yalkut Shimoni. It says, God gathered the dust that the first human was made out of from the four corners of the world, red, black, white, and green. Red is the blood, black is the innards, and green is the body. Forgive the uh, medieval anatomy lesson. Um, why from, but here's the salient thing. Why from the four corners of the world? Why did God take the original dust to make the first human being from all four corners of the world? So that if one comes from the east to the west and reaches the end of their life, no one will say, this land isn't the dust of your body, it's mine. Go back to where you were created. Rather, this way, every place that a person walks is considered from where one is created and to where one will return. Right? So... No piece of land belongs to any one group of people. The entire world belongs to all of us. Right? And I think that um, not only does the law, therefore, uh, in, in classical Jewish law, um, create a very uh, strict, uh, uh, strict application of uh, equality under the law for immigrants uh, and uh, fairness for uh, for. Uh, for uh, immigrants under the law and uh, very strict rules about uh, uh, barring against oppression of immigrants. But also, I think from the outset, despite maybe what Ibn Ezra says there, um, and remember, that's just one voice, but I think the general thrust is that, that, the, that, uh, uh, that borders should be fairly open, right? That... Um, Nowhere in Jewish law is there a statement about uh, a, a um, that I can that I can am aware of um, is a statement about um, you know uh, uh, border guards Im Im immigration uh, enforcement uh, etc. Right um, now, of course, there were walled cities, right, and there were things like that, and there was obviously um, protection, you know, security protections. Um, you wouldn't let in people into your city that you uh, were uh, relatively certain would be a threat to your populations, although um, the gates of the cities were generally only closed at night, right? Um, and, and usually that, uh, the only people who weren't let in during the day were like, you know, advancing armies, right? Um, if you were one person who wanted to walk in the city, right, anybody could walk into Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem now, right? Um, it was the same thing back then. The gates were closed at night because it was dangerous at night. Um, so here, Deuteronomy goes a little bit further in expressing uh, a um, uh, religious underpinning for the treatment of immigrants. 
For the Lord your God is God supreme and Lord supreme, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who shows no favor and takes no bribe, but upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger, providing him with food and clothing. You too must befriend the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Page six. Now, this next text isn't specifically dealing with uh, immigrants, um, but it is dealing with the question of uh, somebody who is in clear violation of the law and nevertheless, because of the vulnerability of their situation, ought not be turned over to law enforcement. You shall not turn over to his master a slave who seeks refuge with you from his master. He shall live with you in any place he may choose among the settlements in your midst. Wherever he pleases, you must not ill-treat him. Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, first, there weren't a lot of rabbis in America uh, uh, in the antebellum era, um, especially in the South. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's the abolitionists, many of whom uh, were inspired by evangelical Christianity, uh, were very fervent about this passage in Deuteronomy. Uh, Pro-slavery preachers uh, were very passionate about other passages in the Bible that seem very favorable to slavery. So what are you going to do? Um, but uh, um, but this this law this law doesn't overturn slavery, right? It just but it does say that you um, that uh, uh, must uh, must not return a slave to his master. The presumption being, if, if a slave runs away from his master, it's because he's being ill-treated, right? So don't uh, don't put him back in a uh, vulnerable situation. And then, um, then Deuteronomy in the list of uh, 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 curses that the children of Israel are, are given before they enter into the land of Israel as a warning is this one. Cursed be he who subverts the rights of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Okay, so now uh, what, what I brought here just um, uh, uh, to bring home, then I want to open it for, for questions and conversation. Uh, are, are a few different texts, longer texts, so I'm not going to read them now. Um, the first is uh, a uh, some some kind of like historical perspectives, okay, um, to the to the modern era. Um, the first being that uh, most of us, my guess is uh, here, uh, who are Jewish, um, are descendants of immigrants and probably the descendants of people who came between 1881 and 1914, or maybe 1917 or 1924. Uh, there's a reason for that. We'll get to that in a second. Um, uh, so there, there are two things that, that are important to remember. The first is that most of those immigrants were not, despite the popular mythology, were not refugees. Right? They weren't fleeing violence uh, or persecution in the Pale of Settlement for the most part, especially not in the earlier part of that period, uh, for the most part, they were fleeing economic insecurity, right? Uh, so the same way that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob uh, were, were, you know, escaped in Egypt, to Egypt because of famine, right? These are people who saw America as the golden of Medina, right? The, the, the golden country, right? The, um, I always think of it like uh, an American tale, you know, the cartoon, right? There are no cats in America and the streets are paved with cheese. <laughs> Right, so um, uh, the streets are paved with gold in America. 
the streets are paved with gold in America, uh, and that's why people came to America, not really because they were being persecuted, although that did happen too. So that's one, right? That, that, um, that sometimes the story of Jews in America is a refugee story, so I think it's fair to say uh, some of our ancestors were refugees, but it's not the entire picture. Uh, much of our, our ancestry in America are, are, are economic migrants, are immigrant stories, right? Now, what's important to know about, um, especially the early part of that period, so from 1881 to basically World War I, there were virtually no immigration laws in America, right? So all of our, not all, most of our ancestors were beneficiaries of having virtually no immigration laws other than the fact that you had to have a pulse and you couldn't have cholera. Okay, so you can see that from I, from the uh, INS websites on. Right, you you have that in the the poem that Emma Lazarus has, uh, uh, the New Colossus, which is on the Statue of Liberty. Right, so, you know, uh, uh, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Right, it's a wide open door in America. Right, she wrote that in 1883, if not mistaken. Um. In the, in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, um, until the late 1800s, um, there was really an open immigration policy. Um, only until 1882 was there a, a tax levied, okay? So as long as you could pay 50 cents, you could get into the country. Um, and you couldn't be a, a lunatic or, uh, or have like a warrant out for your arrest in the country that you come from, that people knew about, right? Um, that changed around the time of World War I, okay? Because all of a sudden, there was foreign anxiety around World War I, um, and uh, uh, there was concern about communists, there was, uh, there was concern about uh, Germans, there was concern about all sorts of immigrant groups. A lot of good research has been done to suggest that much of that anxiety was at least thinly veiled anti-Semitism. Right? So the, the anxiety about the kinds of people we didn't want to let in that prompted new immigration laws around World War I were at least in part in response to the fact that lots of Jews had been coming in. And people weren't crazy about the fact that lots of Jews had been coming in. Also, lots of Irish had been coming in. People weren't crazy about the fact that lots of Irish were coming in. Right? So we set up new uh, in, um, immigration laws around the time of World War I, although still even then they were pretty lax. So um, uh, in 1917, the act required that immigrants were able to read and write in their na native language. Okay, and they had more rigorous medical examinations. So even then, the laws, there was no quota system on national origin. Um, it was, I mean, the reading law was is is uh, sort of harsh in that in that time, um, but it's nowhere near the kind of immigration system that we are now used to today, right? That doesn't really change until 1924, uh, when uh, the Johnson Reed Act was passed, um, and the Johnson Reed Act uh, was uh, was based, um, it, which is a widely accepted history. Uh, because of very clear historical record, uh, the Johnson Reed Act was was uh, was based on racial eugenics, 
wanting to keep um, American society um, as purely white uh, as possible, uh, Western European as possible. Um, and so it was designed to keep out uh, essentially Jews. Um, and uh, it's, it's not, um, uh, it's important to also keep in mind that the Johnson-Reed Act uh, which established quotas and things like that for certain countries of origin, um, uh, was the law that was on the books, or a variation of it was the law that was on the books at the onset of, uh, of uh, the rise of uh, the Nazis in Germany. And it's why Jews fleeing uh, Germany and Eastern Europe at that time weren't allowed to come in, causing many to end up dying in the Holocaust. Right. So, um, So we don't have the kind of immigration laws that we're used to now until this time period. And um, despite some uh, deflections that this is a question of American security, uh, wanting to let in only those people who we you know, know will follow our laws, whatever, uh, the reality is that it is very racially motivated. Um, it's also important to keep in mind that uh, if you look at page nine, uh, the, the first widespread illegal immigration in America were Jews in defiance of the Johnson-Reed Act, right? So the, the, the terminology of illegal immigrant comes uh, to define Jews who are trying to enter the country and, and, uh, and succeeding in a lot of instances uh, between 
Um, but I think I, I found this really fascinating that uh, that the the notion of illegal immigration you know doesn't really exist until the Johnson Reed Amendment, um, and the first illegal immigrants were primarily Jews, right? Really, even originating that terminology of, of uh, illegal immigrants, undocumented immigrants, undocumented is actually more of a PC term that we use now. Uh, illegal immigrants, criminal immigrants, that sort of thing, right? Um, yeah. Right. <clears throat> right. That's right. So, in, uh, did, did I include that in here? Let's see. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So, a, a, a huge thrust of these laws, right, in addition to wanting to exclude Jews, was wanting to exclude Asians. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, so what's what's what what? One second. What's important? What's important to me about about this, about the the notion of illegal immigration, whether it's from Jews or whether it's from uh, Asians coming in, or whether it's from people from uh, uh, from the Muslim world coming in, or from Latin America eventually, right? Um, uh, all of it goes into uh, the question of what is the law that they're violating in the first place, right? Um, is it a just law or is it not? What's the function of it? What's the What's the origin of it? What's the purpose of it? So, you know, in the same way that we would ask the question about, you know, the laws of uh, you know, Jim Crow laws in the South in the 60s, would it be, uh, um, you know, even though people broke the law in defiance of those uh, statutes, uh, do we see them, you know, do we see someone like Martin Luther King as a, as a criminal for breaking the law or as a, uh, or as a, uh, a, a freedom fighter or a liberator for, for breaking those laws or standing in defiance of those laws, right? Um, and we see them just sort of like doing what they needed to do because America is supposed to be a, law, a land of opportunity and uh, the opportunity was closed for people who were fleeing uh, si difficult situations, right? So, uh, you know, so in, and, and uh, a good many of our ancestors were in that category, right? Who came into this country uh, illegally in a very, um, a very well-developed system of, uh, of, of clandestine immigration. Um, by the way, we say the same thing about uh, the... Um, about the uh, um, Underground Railroad during the uh, pre-Civil War era, right? Uh, you know, were those were were those people criminals or not? Right. So I think that these are the same kinds of questions. But it's also so this this story I knew. Okay, so uh, uh, this contemporary Jews I think would do well to think about that um, much of Jewish immigration to pre-state Israel, what became the state of Israel, was illegal immigration, right? We have a great book and movie, Paul Newman's in it, that we love, right? Uh, uh, the Exodus, right, is a story of illegal immigration, right? We celebrate uh, illegal immigration because it's defiance of what we perceive as being um, unjust laws. Uh, and, uh, and, and for... Uh, for good purposes, to live a to live a better life, to live a freer life, to live a more prosperous life. Um, so uh, you know, something like um, ten percent of the population in pre-state Palestine was illegal immigration. Um, I love that. According to Jewish Virtual IRA, in a contemporary perspective, it was like adding twenty-six million people to the current U.S. population. 
the first is that you know the, uh, you know while we're, we could be talking about migrants in general, I think that there's there's both a legal and a moral distinction between uh, immigrants and refugees. Um, there's both differences in in, in process for uh, how refugees come here uh, and uh, in how immigrants uh, uh, come here. Um, uh, so there's one thing I want to say about the refugee issue, which we're talking about. Is first of all, uh, refugees um, are are uh, extremely vetted before they come here. I might even argue too extremely vetted. I think we might also uh, consider having more uh, open policies with respect to, to refugees because they are the most vulnerable people on the planet. Um, but uh, um, uh, uh, but the, the, the issue is not whether they are secular or whether they are religious. Um, what, what tends to produce the kind of uh, radicalization uh, of some former refugees that you see in, um, in, your, in Europe, which has happened a few times, um, most people say it's because what we do here in America, uh, it's not because we let fewer in, it's because we do a better job of assimilating the ones who come in, right? So we do a better job of integrating them into society. We find them apartments and, you know, they, whereas in France, in Paris, um, there are, you know, refugee, basically transplant refugee camps in, uh, in segments of Paris. So, um, or, so, so I think that that's a major issue. So I think that, uh, once, once immigrants and refugees come to a particular country, there is, there is value, uh, uh, a distinct value in uh, in in meshing them into the fabric of the larger society. I think that that's that's what that's what produces uh, positive results. So that's just one thread I wanted to pick up. The, the other thread I wanted to pick up on, which is a related piece, is that one of the things I was hoping to get out of this conversation is that there is a, a, a difference between uh, morality and law. Sometimes. Uh, sometimes uh, what's legal is moral, and sometimes what's moral is legal, but those things aren't always lined up with one another. I think that we might all agree that our ideal world is that those two things line up as best as they can. So um, recognizing that there are uh, aspects of our immigration system today that are uh, that, that are the way the law is constructed, it doesn't necessarily mean that the law is in accordance with the dictates of morality. So the question, though we might establish the law in somewhat arbitrary ways, right? We might say that there's got to be this amount of people we let in, whatever. Um, hopefully, we make those considerations based at least in part on moral considerations, right? So what is, what is the dictates of morality teach us? Now, there is an element of morality that is also about, um, uh, about safety, right? And about, uh, um, about the well-being of, uh, of, of a given population, right? All those things are elements of morality too, right? Judaism uh, has a, a, a robust uh, considerations for safety concerns and security of, of a population. So I'm not saying that that's not the case, right? But when we, but when we go to make those laws, uh, what are the ethical considerations we bring to bear? And if we think about the people who might be breaking those laws or whether we might help people break those laws, do we do that in violation not only of, uh, of the law but also of morality? Right? Or is it actually a moral imperative, even though it might be illegal, to help to, to either break the law or to help people break the law? like sanctuary city. So what I wanted to uh, close with is, first of all, the rabbinical assembly, which is my, the conservative movement's rabbinic body, um, 
uh, has advocated for the rights of immigrants in resolutions uh, two, four, six, seven times over the last two decades, seven separate resolutions on, uh, on advancing a more uh, lenient immigration policy in America um, on uh, granting pathways to citizenship for the undocumented population that's currently here seven times over the past two decades. Uh, and uh, the, we're currently, I expect that it will pass. It hasn't been voted on yet, um, but a resolution uh, in support of sanctuary cities and sanctuary communities uh, that the rabbinical assembly is uh, debating now, in part for this question, right? That that what is legal is not necessarily moral, and sometimes just because something, even though something is legal, there might be a moral obligation to defy what's legal. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, you know coming down firmly in one place or the other, depending on which law we're actually talking about and how we're applying it. What I'm saying is that well, I was looking primarily at where the Jewish ethical tradition might lead us, um, how it might invite us to navigate these conversations as it's part of the national dialogue. <laughs>